We are reading through the Gospel of Mark. And so each Sunday when we gather, we will read a chapter of the Gospel. And instead of taking a smaller portion of Scripture and preaching through it, we're going to have a message on the entire chapter each week. And so today we are looking at Mark chapter 2. Now, when I was a kid, the only two children's TV shows that I watched were Romper Room. Does anybody remember Romper Room? and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, here's what's interesting with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I was first introduced to it when we were visiting up in Canada as a young child, and we were visiting my aunt's, my great-aunt's home, and they had this TV show that had this guy who had these funny puppets that the mouths didn't open. And it wasn't until more recently that I realized that was, Mr. That was the first invention of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that later got picked up by PBS, and that's a show that we all know and we all love. Fred Rogers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood had a trolley. That's why we have our trolley up here. And the trolley would go from where he lived in his neighborhood into the imaginary neighborhood. One day, somebody asked PBS, how far does that trolley travel every year? And they said, oh, about 5,000 miles. Now, of course, we have no way of verifying that, because how far is it from the real world into make-believe? But what happened in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is Fred Rogers emphasized children's social and emotional needs, and that's what I want us to hear today. Chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel is about our social and emotional needs, how we connect with one another, and how we love and have compassion. You see, at the same time, and once, especially once we get into the 1970s, there was another TV show on PBS called Sesame Street. Now, I wasn't, sorry folks, I wasn't a big Sesame Street fan. In fact, I had actually quite the opposite experience where when Sesame Street started to get popular, I was older and I would visit my brother, who his son, who my son is named after, Todd, would watch Sesame Street. And his mom only had one instruction. Anytime Todd wants to watch Sesame Street, that's what the house TV goes on to. And so when I would visit, I noticed that my nephew would watch this show that was published different times, the same show over and over in the same day, and it used to frustrate me. So I didn't have a great relationship with Sesame Street, but Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I always did. Sesame Street focused on school readiness skills, taking kids and getting them ready to go to kindergarten and eventually first grade. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood focused on developing what Fred Rogers called an expression of care. Think about that. As we learn our own emotional needs, we can now be connected with others, and we can connect with the needs of others. Mr. Rogers taught children to be compassionate, to be tolerant, to be willing to share and to have a healthy sense of self-worth. See, none of those are skills that we think of. That's not reading and writing and how to count and any of that stuff, but it is very much how we live our life. We've learned to call that emotional intelligence, how we understand who we are and how we understand who the other person is so that we can show love and compassion. Fred Rogers tackled difficult topics, topics that were important to children, like the death of a pet. Sibling rivalry. A new baby coming into the family. 
See, sometimes we forget about that. Mom and dads get all excited. The new baby's coming in, and now the older brother or sister is like, what is the thing that's getting all this attention? That was one of my favorite Mr. Rogers episodes, in fact. Moving and going into a new school. Now, that one I identified with because when I was in third grade, we moved in the middle of the year, and I went into a new school, and that was a very traumatic moment in my life. And those are things that kids need to understand, how they're feeling, what others are thinking about. Divorce. All the stuff that children would have emotional difficulties with or needed to express their feelings so they could, in fact, understand the feelings of others. Now, why do I say that as we're looking at this text? Because in our 21st century, we have something that helps us not develop our emotional needs. It's called social media. It does the opposite. Social media kind of works like this. A person puts out something that somebody else is going to get hurt from, and then they're surprised when the other person puts out something that hurts them, and pretty soon you have two people going back and forth at each other, not thinking about how the other person feels. Chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel is not about us expressing our opinions. It's about us connecting with other people emotionally and understanding that other people are human beings and need our love and compassion. And our model becomes Jesus, who Jesus always cares about every single person. That's why in Mark chapter 2, as we're going through the gospel, we're going to try to give you a word to think of each chapter. In chapter 1, we talked about Jesus' confidence. David talked to us last week about how Jesus was baptized. He comes on the scene, and Mark's gospel doesn't give you the birth narratives or, or any of the things of him growing up as a child. It just starts with this baptism of Jesus in which he's declared to be God's son, God's beloved, and the one who makes God very happy. And Jesus immediately has confidence. And all through chapter 1, you see the confidence of Jesus building as he is able to be his self to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, to be the teacher. And we learned how that's also what God wants in our lives. Now in chapter 2, if chapter 1 is all about confidence, chapter 2 is about compassion. Compassion is how we need to learn to live our lives. When we think of what happened, pretty soon as Jesus starts to get popular, the question really starts raising, is he going to care about people? And what we see in chapter 2 is, as Jesus' popularity arises, all of a sudden one day he's interrupted when a bunch of people bring a paralyzed man and he's lowered through the ceiling. David read that story, how this guy comes down, they cut a hole in the ceiling in the middle of a big gathering, all of a sudden this guy is there. Is Jesus going to be compassionate towards him or is he going to see him as an irritation? I'm really busy. Think about that if in church now, you know, I'm here presenting something. If something happened to someone, the question would be, do I care about that person or am I more preoccupied with the message that I'm getting out? That's what people started to see about Jesus. How does he act? How does he respond when there's a person with great need? And then we find out that he gets to know a tax collector and he ate in his home. We're going to talk about that this morning. And then when his disciples are hungry... And it's a day of fasting. Jesus invites him to go get a granola bar. He said, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter what the rules are. If you're hungry, you need something to eat. He didn't want hangry people. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired people. 
And then Jesus goes on and he says, you know, here's the deal. The Sabbath isn't made, people aren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. Rules are not there so we serve the rules. Rules are there to keep us safe and, and make our lives better. And when rules start getting in the way and make people not feel as if they're cared for, there's a problem and we need to address that. So that becomes really the question. What happens in Jesus' life when all of a sudden he's popular and people are seeing his popularity and he goes from just kind of being an individual that, yeah, he's caring for people and now as he does a miracle, crowds start gathering to now he has the crowds. How is he going to treat people? It got me thinking of when I lived in Rhode Island. We lived near the Pawtucket Red Sox. And any time I would go to a hospital visit over in, in Pawtucket, the stadium was right around the corner, McCoy Stadium. So one of the things I used to do is if I would do a hospital visit, and it was during the time when the Red Sox were playing, I'd stop over and I'd buy tickets to the Pawtucket Red Sox. And then later that day, my family and I would all go and we'd watch the Paw Sox. And I learned something from talking to the fans at the Paw Sox. And I remember one lady in particular who shared this with me. She said, you know, it's really interesting, these guys who play for the Paw Sox. Because when they're here, they're the greatest guys in the world. And we'll talk back and forth, and, and we'll cheer for them, and they'll come over, and they'll talk to us, and we'll get to know stuff about them. But you call them up to the Red Sox, the big team, and we show up as fans from Pawtucket, and we try to call out to them and say, hey, remember us? They act like they've never met us before in our lives. A little bit of popularity, and all of a sudden, they don't care. Well, one time, my sister got me tickets. She used to be able to do this because she worked in advertising, and they used to have tickets for all kinds of stuff up in Boston. And one time, she got me tickets for the Celtics. And I took my dad to a Celtics game. They're great seats. They're the box seats up in the skybox seats, and we had an awesome time. The game was over, and my dad and I left, and I got out the gate, and all of a sudden I realized it was winter. I had a brand new pair of gloves. I forgot it in my seat. So I went back, and I talked to the person where we just got, came through the gate, and I said, I forgot my, my gloves. And they said, oh, you can't be readmitted. Once you leave the game, you can't go back in. And the game was over. We don't let anybody back in the garden. This was actually the old Boston Garden. He said, however, I'll tell you, there's a service entrance, and he sent me around to the back service entrance, and he said, if you go over to that service entrance, you'll find that somebody there can probably help you. Just explain to them, show them your tickets, and maybe they'll go get you your gloves. So my dad and I go over, and we're standing there. We tell the guy, and he said, show me the tickets. Got talking to him. He said, yeah, I'll get somebody to go get your gloves. So my dad and I are standing, and all of a sudden we discovered there was another advantage to forgetting your gloves in the old Boston Garden. They sent us to the place where all the players left. Now, Boston had just beat the Philadelphia 76ers. And all of a sudden, the 76ers start walking through. And I'm holding a program, and the first person who walked through was Manute Bowl. The first thing I noticed about Manute Bowl is when I was looking at him, my eyes met his waist. He was way up there. I thought of getting his autograph, and then I thought, no, I want Charles Barkley's autograph. Waited, and along comes Barkley. Remember, the 76ers just got beat by the Celtics. And Charles Barkley's walking by, and I said, Mr. Barkley, could I get your autograph? And I thought, oh, that's probably a pretty bad thing to do as a Celtics fan. And he turned to me, and he looked, and I said, 
it's for my son. I said, I have a newborn. His name is David. Charles Barkley walked over and said, I'm happy to sign a program for a child. And he signed it and handed it to me. I've been a Charles Barkley fan ever since. Sorry, folks. The one guy who doesn't play for the Celtics I've always loved. David still has that program. That's really the question about Jesus. Is he going to act like Charles Barkley, who cares and cares about people at that moment? I can't tell you anything about the rest of his life. I can only tell you my one experience. Or is he going to act like the guys from the Pawtucket Red Sox, and now you've got a little bit of popularity, and I don't care about anybody? Because this gets to the issue of compassion. How do we view other people? You see, Jesus is compassionate with us so that we can learn to be compassionate with others. And it begins in Mark chapter 2 when we discover that Jesus sees all of our wounds. He doesn't marginalize us. He doesn't just see us one individual way. He sees the whole person. And when you and I have a relationship with Jesus, we realize he sees every part of our life. He understands the things that we don't really wish were there, that are our hurts and our pains, and he loves and he cares about every single one of them. That's why one of my wife's two favorite Bible stories is this story from Mark chapter 2. Her other one she likes is Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus climbs up the tree, she's always liked the story of that little guy going up in the top of the tree and looking out for Jesus. But this, she always tells me, is her favorite. Where these guys have a friend who's paralyzed. And Jesus is in teaching in a house. And these guys climb to the top of the house, cut a hole in the roof. Sorry, trustees, we're not going to do that here today. And they take a guy and they lower him down because they can't get him in, and this guy is paralyzed. What's interesting is in the midst of Jesus' teaching in this busy place, listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, we read that story so many times, we may miss the power of what just happened. You see, by verse 8, Jesus is being told that he's blaspheming God. How dare you forgive sins? But at this moment, when Jesus encounters that person, he sees him as more than just a crippled man. Everybody else only sees a guy who's paralyzed. Everybody else only sees this one glaring thing about this person. Even his friends, God bless them, they're trying to get that fixed. But everybody who would have been present that day would have said, oh, there's a guy who's paralyzed. He, obviously, I feel bad for him. I hope that things go better for him. But Jesus understood that this man was more than his disability. Jesus understood he was a person like you and me. Yeah, maybe he was paralyzed, but he had also said things he didn't want to say, and he felt bad about him. He'd also probably stolen stuff as a kid. Maybe he took something that wasn't his, and he's like, is God going to forgive me for that? And Jesus goes beyond just the one characteristic in somebody's life and sees the entire person and understand that even though this man was crippled and that was part of his story, it not being the whole story, the guy needed forgiveness. You see, that's how Jesus approaches us. We look at one another and maybe we see the talent that they have. Maybe we see something about them. Maybe we see their political opinion. Maybe... We see the job that they do, and pretty soon we start putting people in these categories. Churches are very, very, very prone towards doing that. 
That's why, did you notice, sorry to pick on both of them, Judith was an administrative assistant, but that's not her only identity in our church. We understand all the ways in which Judith serves and is a whole human being. Same thing with Christine. We talked about she's going to be working in the office, but she also does a lot of other things and goes to a Bible study and wants to get to know people. Because when we put people in one category, we marginalize them. Amen? Amen. A person can be in recovery. Recovery is not their whole story. A person can be divorced. Divorce is not their whole story. A person can get a job and be excited about their new job and their promotion. That's not their whole story. I love the old gospel song that used these words. He looked beyond my faults and saw my need. Jesus sees the whole person. He understands who you are inside and out. When we only see people one-dimensionally, we marginalize them. And when you and I feel like we're just one thing, we feel marginalized ourselves. And we start feeling used. Now, one of the things that I think I've shared this before, our family tends to be a very musical family, in case you haven't noticed. That means my son is a great singer and a wonderful keyboardist. He went to college on an organ scholarship. My youngest son is also an amazing guitarist and plays in a couple bands, and he's playing in a worship team this morning. My mom was a great music teacher. You know who's not musical? Me. It happens. But I appreciate music. I can play one instrument. It's called my stereo. I put a record on and I turn the, turn the thing off. It sounds great every time. Well, in our family, when I told you about that story that I first saw Fred Rogers and the puppets, that was in the home of Katie Lang. Anybody know Katie Lang? Won a few Grammy Awards. Very popular singer. She's my second cousin. She's also younger than me, so... When I met her for the first time, she was a baby. Well, Katie Lang, when she was at the height of her popularity, had just won a Grammy Award for the, the album Ingenue, was packing out stadiums. I could go into a bookstore, and I'd look in the magazine rack. I could always find Katie Lang on the front covers. You'd go to Strawberries Records at the time. There were big posters of her everywhere. Well, because she was coming up to Harbor Lights in Boston, and my nephew and myself and my sister and a few of us were going to the concert, we decided to contact her, see if we could get backstage passes to see her after the show, and we were given the backstage passes. Show was over, we went, and we were getting ready to go in, and they said, sorry, the show went a little late, nobody's able to come back for backstage passes. And I said to the person who came out and talked, I said, could I write a note to Katie? And they said, sure. And I said, hi, it's your cousin Stan. Is there any way you would let us come in? And they came back and they said, okay, nobody can go backstage, but I guess there's some Cushings here or relatives. You guys can go back. I turned to my nephew and I said, why don't you just go back? Because he knew Katie a whole lot better than I do. And I said, why don't you go back and, and hang out with her for a little while after the show? Show's over. Top of her game. Grammy Award best-selling album, pictures in every Strawberries records that you go into. He walks back, he sits down, they're talking, and he discovered something that blew him away. They were insecure about the show that they had just put on. And they were sitting around in a, in a circle with band members, and they were talking about how the audience wasn't really into it, and the sound didn't really sound that good, and they were feeling really bad. And my nephew was sitting there thinking, they're human beings just like me. 
The great Katie Lang has the same insecurities about a show that everybody else does. And then my nephew decided to try to say something. Now, you can imagine this. You're sitting with somebody who just won a Grammy Award, and you're getting ready to speak up. And he said, actually, can I say something? And they said, sure. He said, my uncle, he's come to Harbor Lights a few times, and I, he always says the sound isn't that great here, and no performers really like it. And they go, really? And all of a sudden, Todd realized they actually cared about his opinion, and he was making them feel better. And he goes, yeah, he just saw Ray Charles here a while ago, and Ray Charles was complaining from the stage about the sound. Wow, that's great. Maybe our show wasn't so bad. You see, I was sitting there watching a great performer. Everybody else was seeing a person who was on the top of her game. But she and her band were just normal human beings like everybody else with the same fears, the same insecurities, and the same thoughts that anybody else would have. A person can win a Grammy Award, but they still have their insecurities. They're still a human being. We need to learn to see the whole person the way Jesus did, because that's how Jesus views you. You're not one-dimensional to God. You're all the complexities of who you and I are as human beings. And once we start understanding that and God's grace works in our lives, then we can share that with others. How do you believe God views you? Do you understand that all the stuff that matters to you matters to Jesus? How do you understand that Jesus wants you to view others? People in your life that maybe you've been marginalizing because you only see them one way. And you need to understand, maybe there is something that bothers you when every time you talk to the person or every time you see that person, that comes to mind. Maybe it's time to talk to them about something else. God wants us to understand what true compassion is. Forget Grammy Award winners. What about crazy motorists? What do you do when that person goes zipping by you and goes through the stoplight and frustrates you? Do you see them as a crazy motorist or do you think, well, maybe that person is having a bad day. Maybe there's other stuff going on in their life. I'll have a prayer for them. How about if you're at the grocery store and there's a kid acting up? Do you see them as an annoying child? Or do you realize that's a real human being that God created? And the parents and the family has all the struggles and all the stuff that every one of us has. Jesus sees us as we truly are. Not just in one capacity, so that as we experience that grace in our life, we can start sharing it with others. And here's the thing. He sees it all. He sees the good, he sees the bad, and he sees the ugly. In fact, Jesus is here to heal our shame. And we all have some place in our life. I know we don't like that word shame, but we all have that place that we don't want anybody else to know about. That's why in verse 15 of chapter 2, we're told after that first experience, later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other, I like this word, disreputable sinners. That's a good term for all of us. That's what we are. Disreputable sinners. People who understand ourselves what we've done wrong, even if others don't see it in us. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. So here's this guy, Levi, who is a tax collector. Now, I just want to give you a quick little side note. Sometimes he's called Matthew. Sometimes he's called Levi. And people say, is that two different people? 
Well, let's try something. What's my name? Nice and loud. Okay, what am I also known as? You all missed it. My first name is David. You see, people do have different names. So Levi probably was also called Matthew. Sometimes it could be from different languages. But the truth is, Levi Matthew is a tax collector. And Jesus goes and eats with him. Now what we do know about tax collectors is they were not working for the Jewish government because there was not an Israeli government. They were working for the Roman government. And the Romans were the occupying country. And so if you think... How many people here, first of all, like to pay taxes? How, you just can't wait till April 15th comes around. And in fact, whatever your tax bill is, you double it because you like it so much. Ready? I didn't see a hand. Okay. We don't like it. That's the point. Well, if we don't like it, imagine that your taxes are being collected for a different country. And now you've got people from your nation who are collecting the taxes for somebody else, and you're sitting there going, I don't really like this person. That's who Levi was. And that's how people would have viewed him. And as much as that's how he lived his life, and we know that there was some graft and all kinds of stuff involved with that, there's also a lot of shame that was involved with that. Because those are the things sometimes that we don't talk about, you know? Everybody knows what that person did, but we, just, we try to be polite as we avoid them. And that's how people would have treated the tax collectors. But what does Jesus do? He goes in and he eats with them in his home and invites all the other tax collectors and says, while we're at it, let's just take everybody who anybody's uncomfortable with or anybody that people think have done something wrong, let's bring them all together. Because Jesus heals us at our most shameful moment. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, be a sinner. Be a sinner. And let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We usually call this a sin boldly statement. We paraphrase it and say what Martin Luther said is, sin boldly, but trust God even more boldly. Because it is our perfectionism that gets in our way. Folks, I'm sorry, there ain't a perfect person in this congregation today because there's never a perfect person in a congregation. Amen? Amen? Who's perfect? Jesus. Who isn't? Us. And so when we look at the shame in our lives and the things that we don't want somebody else to understand, we need to realize that perfectionism is dishonest. And what Jesus does is he comes to those areas in our lives where we don't want anyone else to even see, and that's where he wants to bring about healing. That's where he wants to work in your life and my life. Years ago, Regina and I moved to New England, and we we're both good Midwesterners. And there are a few things that I learned quickly about moving to New England. One is you have a big ocean here. And everybody's impressed with the ocean, including my wife. Joe's not impressed with the ocean, me. It's just a bunch of water. But you know what I like? Because I like to be out on a green field and go stand out in the country. Something else I noticed when I first moved here. You have stone fences. Now those impressed me. And I started noticing these stone fences all over New England. And it's very, very, very New England. And it's very cool. And in North Dakota, we don't have those. When we get our stones, we put them in the middle of a field. And if you drive out to a field in North Dakota, 
you'll see in the middle of a big grain field a big pile of rocks, because that's what they do with all the rocks. They just take them to the middle so they don't break a plow on them. And every spring, myself and other young kids would go out and they would hire us to pick up any of the rocks that had come out over the winter. We'd put them on the back of a big hay wagon and they'd take them to the middle of a field and they'd pile them there. I come to New England and you have these stone fences. I would thought it would be neat to have one, and then we moved to Rhode Island. And when we got to Lincoln, Rhode Island, guess what we had in our backyard? A big stone fence. I was so excited. And then I looked at our fence, and ours was all broken down, and I looked at everybody else's, and it was all perfect, and I realized the pastors had not taken care of the stone fence. So Regina and I got busy, and we started going out and learning how to fix a big stone wall. Then I discovered something else. When a stone, a big stone, has fallen off a stone wall and it's fallen down and it's sat there for a long time and you pick it up, there's a bunch of yucky, grubby, unsightly things under that stone. They're wiggly and slimy and you don't want to touch them. Why? Because they haven't seen the light of day. That's where far too many Christians live their lives. We have this stuff that we've kept buried in our life. The stuff that's under the stone. That stuff that we don't want anybody to see, and we're not even comfortable looking at it ourselves. And where does Jesus come? He lifts up the stone, and that's where he wants to do healing. He says, you're not worthless. You're not unredeemable. He doesn't go to Levi and the tax collectors and the people who have lived a life that everybody else says, yeah, fine, you might have made a lot of money, but I don't like who you are. He takes those individuals and he wants them to know that they do not lead, need to live in shame, that that's where God does his healing. For you personally, do you realize Jesus loves you, period? Period? It's not that somebody else did something that earn God's favor and you didn't? None of us has earned God's favor. It's called grace. Do you and I understand that we are just beloved and if we were the only ones who had ever done anything wrong, Jesus would have come into this world for us to give his life for us personally because we are beloved and cherished, period? How do we treat others? Are we judgmental towards others and think that we have to fix them? Or do we understand that God loves them too? And God's not just working in your life and my life. Do you know God's working in their life also? Take the person you have the most problem with. Take the people. Maybe it's a group of people you struggle with. Do you realize Jesus is active in their lives? In dealing with the stuff in their life also, the shame and the guilt? You see, this takes us to our final thing we learn in this chapter. Not only in chapter 2 do we realize that Jesus sees our wounds and wants to heal us at the moment of our deep shame, but he does it by combating our legalism. Because far too often we come up with these rules or somebody else comes up with these rules that somehow we can't live up to, and then we feel bad. Or we impose them on somebody else and they don't live up to them, so we create more rules and then they can't live up to them either. And that's why the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, who liked rules, when you think Pharisee, think like religious leader. Do you know what leaders like? They like to have more rules to control people. And that's what these people did. And they saw the disciples who were out eating on a day of a fast. Oh my goodness, what a horrible thing. You know, didn't you know you weren't supposed to eat today? I don't know, maybe they're going to pass out. Maybe they're feeling faint. 
we've run fast here as a church for young people, and you know, sometimes the young people get kind of sick because they can't go a whole long time without eating. Jesus, however, doesn't worry about the fast. He worries about the person. Amen? Amen. He doesn't worry about the rule. He worries about you and me and our lives being changed and transformed. And so Jesus reminded them of David. And he says to them, you know, the Sabbath was not made for the needs of people. And it's not for people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. No, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, we are not created so that we follow a bunch of rules. Rules are really there just to protect and give us life and encourage us and help us to live better. And any time we get to the place where we start thinking, oh, I have to do this and I'm not good enough because I didn't do it. A sermon I used to preach in my first, sermon, or my first church was, quit apologizing to me as your pastor when you took your family to the beach instead of coming to church on Sunday morning. You see, it's not a rule. It's not some heavy, hard-fasted rule that says, if you're not here, Pastor Stan's going to judge you and say, where were you? I might say, I missed you and I care about you, but it's not about following rules. And if a family needs to spend time at the beach or take their family somewhere because that's what's best for them, that's how Jesus wants us to live our lives. Because it's not about us feeling like we have these things that we have to follow, and if we don't follow them, we're not good. Amen? Amen. That's religion. This ain't about religion, folks. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's about grace and learning to be loved and cherished, every one of us. So Jesus says, look at David. If you think my disciples did something wrong because they had a granola bar, actually a little bit of grain, they broke off and ate the heads of it. How about David? David and his men were hungry, and they went into the temple, and they had basically what would today be our communion bread, and they needed something to eat, and David gave it to him and said, yeah, this is only supposed to be given to the priest, but you're hungry today. Here, have something to eat. Where's your legalism? We're all guilty of it. We all have it in our life. Do you have guilt? And create more rigid rules for yourself that you can't live up to? A lot of people live their lives that way. And then they just get stuck in the same cycle. That's why we say let go and let God. God doesn't ask us to have some rigid rules to follow. And that somehow if we can get them better today than we did yesterday, that God will finally love us. How about towards others? Do you have rigidity? Or do you learn to practice grace and, and understanding with others? Because in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, we start to realize what a savior we serve. A guy who's compassionate. The only one who ever lived a perfect life. And what does he do with his perfection? He gives his life for us. He died for you and for me that we might have a relationship with God. He forgives us and extends compassion and love and grace so that we can learn to treat others the same. Our prayer for us as we go through the Gospel of Mark is that we would learn who Jesus really is. Because there's a lot of fake Jesuses that are going around in the church. There's a lot of people who have turned our Savior into somebody that he's not. And so we're going back to the text and reminding ourselves how he lived 
so we can experience that relationship because that's the only reason we're here, folks. Only reason we come to church is to gather with other Christians, to worship God, to grow in our faith so that we could get to know Jesus better. And as he gets to know us and we get to know him, he transforms our lives and teaches us how to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your grace. We thank you that you care deeply about each and every single one of us. You're present in our worship. You're present in our reading. You're present in those times in our life when we feel guilty, when we feel less than. Help us to serve you. Not out of having to, but out of a desire because you love us so unconditionally. We thank you for this man, Jesus, this Savior, this perfect God and perfect man who came to earth to teach us how to live. May we receive his grace and his forgiveness that we could get rid of anything that encumbers us. And may we also learn to serve you. In Christ's name we pray.